Well, it's good to see everyone out tonight. You know, I was thinking, I hadn't preached here in a long time. But, you know, that's how I got to know this congregation was when Frank Walton had left, was uh, going in and, and preaching. And uh, so then once I got here and got familiar with everybody, I, did, I didn't get asked to preach anymore. So. <laughs> so I won't keep you too long tonight. Appreciate the presence of everyone, especially those uh, visiting with us, and hope you'll be back with us Wednesday night at, at 7 p.m. for another period of worship. You know, there's an old adage that, that is said that nothing is ever as bad as it seems, and nothing is ever as good as it seems. And that's the way it is on this earth. And um, over the last couple of months, I know of four people that have taken their own life. One uh, was a very beautiful girl. I saw her obituary in the paper with Franklin High School. She was at Western Kentucky, and life just got bad. She was stressed out in school, and she took her life. And one of my former customers, an elder at Lost River on the board at FC, he took his life about three or four weeks ago. And then I got a call last week that one of my fraternity brothers in college took his life here in Nashville. He was 49 years old, um, very sharp guy in school. I didn't keep tabs with him much afterwards, but uh, he had called me a couple of months ago, and uh, he sold clothes to Tom James. I was telling him, I said, you know, man, I don't wear ties and suits anymore, so. If uh, something comes up, I'll call you. Then two days or just a few days later, one of the fellows in my office, his son, took his life. He was 22. And, you know, it really hit me. Four people that I either knew or acquainted with in a two- to three-week period. And, you know, I've talked to some of my partners at work, and they've known some people this past year, several. But what is it about this life that, gets to the point where we think we just can't take it anymore. It's very discouraging to those that are left. It's very selfish to the ones that he leaves and have to live with it the rest of their life. I was talking to one of my friends about my fraternity brother, and he said his grandfather took his life when my friend was a very young boy. He said, you know, this is something that stays in the family for years, and it's just something you just can't get rid of. It's just very sad. But, you know, we just got to keep on going. And there's several things that encourage us and that encourages me from studying. You know, it happened here at Franklin about 10 years ago that we had a fellow take his life. And we just had a gospel meeting in the following week. Um, I think his name is Jim Beasley. Uh, took his life and left a wife and two small children. Had an effect on all of us. There's several things in the Bible. This is not going to be a depressing sermon, believe me. I'm going to I'm going to have it happy at the end. But there's several reactions in the Old Testament and New Testament where people got despondent enough. If you look at the life of Saul over in First Samuel the thirty first chapter, Saul was in battle and he was had so many uh, problems, emotional problems. He had fallen out of God's favor. 
in the fighting gets fierce, in verse 3, he says, it says, The fighting grew fierce around Saul. When the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. And Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. There's an example of someone that, that took matters in his own hands. And then, of course, Samsonite over in Judges, the 16th chapter. Samson, in verse 30, says, Let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus, he killed many more when he had died than while he lived. And then over in the great men of faith, we see Samson's name. And, you know, in all this, it's in God's hand. We don't have to make the final decisions on particular people that get to the point in their life where they think there's no hope, that there's dead ends in life. And what I always try to teach my children are there are no dead ends in life. The fact of the matter is that God is there and God's family is always around too. But the fact that God is there takes over everything. And then we notice over in Matthew, the 27th chapter, Judas, who had betrayed the Lord, in Matthew, the 27th chapter, early in the morning, all the chief priests and elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death, and they bound him and led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Now, you don't see people naming their children Judas, do you? I've never, I don't know of anybody named Judas. And, you know, probably all the other apostles, probably people have been named that, but not Judas because it brings up a bad memory there of what Judas did. What are some of the causes? All kinds of things that cause us to get severely depressed, anywhere from chemical imbalances to just things in this life drag us down. But if you look at the parable of the sower, and we've been studying this in class, that a farmer went out to seed, sow his seed in Matthew the 13th chapter. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil, and it sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. And then later on, as Jesus gives us a spiritual application, he says, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches what was sown in his heart. That is the seed sown along the path. The one who received the seed that fell on the rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time, and when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. And the one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is a man who hears the word. But the worries of this life 
in the deceitfulness of wealth, choke it, making it unfruitful. That is, are some examples of an individual losing faith and letting this world get to him. And then over a very familiar passage over in 1 Timothy, the 6th chapter. There are a few verses I want to read there. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 9, it says, People who want to get rich fall into temptation and trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor put their hope in their wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So there are some verses that give reason to why people let themselves become despondent. The fact that they let things in this life, whether they be worries or cares, or whether it, it is money from the standpoint of wanting to acquire things, or having things, and then things go bad in your business, and then to see in your own mind where you're losing everything that you had. Thus, the downfall of man, that he thinks that it's the end of his journey, that he can no more cope with it nor deal with it, and that he takes action on his own life, which we've seen happen in Scripture and examples in our life that we've seen people for whatever reason in the world. Most of the time, it's we don't know what would cause a person to do something like this. It happens to people that are in the church, not as much as people in the world, but we have seen it to people in the church, people that are preachers, people that are elders, people that are deacons, song leaders. No one is spared. But, you know, it just proves that we're all human, we all have weaknesses, and if we let ourselves get to it, we can just let ourselves get so low that our self-worth is worth nothing. But one thing we can learn about are a lot of successful stories in the Bible of people who were despondent. Remember the story of Jonah? We're not going to read that, but Jonah got so depressed. God had a vine grow over him and give him shade. He was so depressed, he just sat under that vine, despondent, severely down. God said, get up. And that's many times the answer to self-pity is get up and do something. Great lesson this morning, Jonathan, because being a servant of God teaches us that we can't let ourselves get down and stay down. We've all got things in our lives. I mean, if look at Clay Joseph. He could have given up a long time ago. He's looking great. He's got a new lease on life, and he's taking advantage of it. And Clay, what it does, it encourages all of us. We're thankful for it, that God has blessed you, and he's blessed us from blessing you. And we're so thankful for that. If you look at the life of Paul, let's look at a, a few passages here. Over in Acts, the 8th chapter, when we get to know about Paul, I think it's interesting to find out. I think many of us would think, you know, I want to make it to heaven, and I want to see Paul and ask him this, or I want to ask him that. Paul is one of our favorite 
But look what it says about him in the first verse. And Saul was there, Acts 8, giving approval to his death, talking about Stephen. And then later on, it talks more, uh, well, in verse 3 here, it says, uh, Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. And then the ninth chapter, in the first verse, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anywhere who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them prisoners to Jerusalem. And then we learn over in 1 Timothy, the first chapter, when Paul describes himself. And at this point, he has a great relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 15 of chapter 1, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Paul and Peter took a disadvantage and made it into an advantage. They didn't let the burden of guilt dry up their emotional state, their spiritual state. They accepted the fact that they obeyed the Lord in baptism for the remission of their sins and knew that their sins were forgiven and knew that they had a relationship with the Lord. And yes, they knew that they had done wrong things in the past, but their overbearing thought was, I'm forgiven, and I have a relationship with the Lord, and I'm put here for a reason, and that's to serve others. That's a great example when I look at that. There are several other things, but if you look at Paul's life over in 2 Corinthians, we're going to look at a couple of things here. In 2 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, if anybody had any excuses to give up the faith it would have been Paul. Second, Second Corinthians eleven twenty one. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. What anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country in danger in sea, and in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for the churches. What got Paul through everything was his concern for the churches. When my concern is for my fellow man, my concern for myself goes down goes away. But when I'm focusing inwardly, 
the burden seems heavy. We've all been through a lot. I can look through. I've known many of you. I've known for years. And all of us have gone through times of trial with our faith. And we've all been here together. That's one thing I've loved about this congregation here is you're not going to find anybody that's more supportive than this congregation of people. We've had some come and go and some move in and move out. But they've been an influence on us, and hopefully we have been on them. And one day we're all going to be together. And that's what's the great thing about it is we all have each other. Then Paul goes on to talk about his thorn in the flesh over in the 12th chapter. Three times it says in the 8th verse, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient. Just remember, no matter what you're going through in this life, don't forget that Jesus says, My grace is sufficient. Just those comforting words are what led Jesus to make it through the temptation of Satan. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, what did Jesus do? He came back to Scripture. It is written. It is written. The best thing that strengthens our faith is it is written. Those words of the Lord that have been here, the, the, the Scriptures that are here to comfort us in all kinds of adversity. But then for those of us mired in sin, and we all are from time to time, if we take the course of action that Paul recommends through the Holy Spirit here, then it's going to be a great prescription for our sin. In 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter, in verse 8, Paul says, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurts you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance. It leads to salvation. It leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. You, at every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leads to no regret. That is a strong passage there. The fact that if I have a godly sorrow toward my sin, toward whatever it may be, toward it may be to my, the way I treat my brother or the way I treat my child or my spouse or the way I treat people that I'm around at work or financial dealings I do or business dealings that I've done through my business. Maybe had a child at a sporting event and they didn't make the right call and I got upset and front of everybody and said things and did things I shouldn't have done. We've all seen people in those situations. I'll never forget playing softball one time years ago. I was at another congregation and most of the guys on this team, my team, were members of the church there. Well, I think practically all of them were. One of them's dad was an elder. 
and we were playing a softball game over here in Brentwood at Cimitan Park. And uh, I was up at, no, I was, well, I was one of the coaches, and the umpire called me over there. He said, you better tell that man up there to shut up. I've heard about all him I want to hear. And I looked up there, and it was one of the elders at the church I went to up the road here. And uh, about stunned me because this guy was the most subtle person you'd ever seen. But his son was playing. His son was in his 20s, and you thought he was about 12 years old. But uh, it, was, it was actually pretty funny. But we don't, you know, there are things that we're going to do and the things that we're going to say and the way we handle that, the way we respond to it is very important. It's very important to those around us, but especially to God. And that's what helps give us the peace when we respond in a godly way, the way God wants us to. Let's look at, you know, I brought up some passages earlier about lack of faith, the parable of the sower, and about the love of money. And, I, you know, when he gives those analogies there or tells us what we should or should not do, he also gives a remedy, too. If you go back over to the parable of the sower, he offers, he talks about the good soil. Still other seed fell on good soil, verse 8. Matthew 13, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. And then later on, verse 23, But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is a man who hears the word, understands that he produces a crop yielding a hundred and sixty or thirty times what was sown. And then if you go over to 1 Timothy, the sixth chapter, I read you those verses about the love of money and what it can do to us. Well, there's also a solution there, too, in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 through 8. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Great passage there. Being content with what we... Why can't we be content with what we have? Verse 18 and 19. I'm as guilty as anybody else. I, I let things get to me here. Command them to do good instead of being rich in wealth looking for that. There's nothing wrong with having a lot, but putting your hope and trust in it is wrong. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Just exactly what things Jonathan was talking about being a servant. Doing things for others. Being helpful. Use that wealth if you got it. Help others out. Use it if you don't have wealth. Use your talents to encourage. You might say something that just saves somebody's life. Somebody calls you and wants to talk. You might save their life by doing that. Somebody, an encouraging word, just showing up when somebody's down might be something that just makes everything turn for them. Think, little things that we think about. Jesus gave a prescription for peace in Matthew, the sixth chapter. And it's such a great series of verses. But when he talks about worry and letting things in this life get to us, simple, so strong, though. When he talks about the birds of the air, 
he starts in verse 25, tells us not to worry about our life, what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, our body. But then he talks about in verse 26, he said, Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you much more valuable than they? And then by worrying, who can add a single hour to his life? I mean, then he says, Look at the lilies of the field. God clothes the grass of the field, down in verse 30, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire. Will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? Don't worry, then what shall we eat or what shall we what shall we drive or where shall we live, as he would say maybe this day and time. For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. About three weeks ago, I was invited to go to a first, I think it was called First Step. Anyway, it was a uh, fundraising dinner in Murfreesboro for kids, at-risk kids. It's a basketball program. They had Jody Eden Sr. speak. I know you know who Jody Eden Sr. is. Screen music. He's a great guy. He talks. He's just like he was then. He looks just like he did 30 years ago. He's 78 years old, I think. He doesn't speak much anymore, but he's friends with NTSU's coach and his dad. He told us a story, though, of what keeps him going and what he lived for. And I know he's a religious, I know he's a spiritually minded man, but he told us a story about a boy that really hit me and I think hit everybody there and the effect that we can have on people. But he has a basketball camp that he's had for probably 30 years in a little town in Mississippi. I can't tell you where it is. I don't know where it is. He told us the name. He's ran it for all these years. The last few years, his son, Jody Jr., ran it. He said one day he was at, it was a week-long school, and it was underprivileged. It was four underprivileged kids. He said his son came up to him and said, Dad, you need to go talk to this little boy. He said, he not only can shoot the ball, he can catch the ball. He said, would you please go over there and work with him? So he went over there. And he said, sure enough, that boy couldn't catch it or throw it. <laughs> he said, he didn't have any business being at this camp. But he said, I went up to the boy, and he knew he didn't have any skills. And I said, Billy, where's his name? He said, son, what do you like to do? He said, I like to play the I like to play the trumpet. He said, Well, are you in the school band? He said, Yes, I'm in the fifth chair or whatever those are. I don't know, whatever chair they are. You know, first chair is the best one. And he said, uh, he said, Well, you know, Billy, he said, if you really enjoy it, you can make it up to that first chair. He said, you can, he said, you just need to, whatever you enjoy, you need to give it your fullest. And he said, 20 years later, he was in an airport, and this kid, this guy comes up to him. And he goes, Coach Dean, you remember me? He goes, no, I don't believe I do, son. He said, I'm the one that couldn't catch or throw the ball in the trumpet. Remember that? He said, what do you like to do? And he said, yeah, I do remember that. 
He said, well, did you ever make it to the first chair? He said, I sure did. He said, and because of what you did, I'm chairman of the corporation right now. Now, if you don't think you can have an effect on somebody, this man, and Joe Dean is a very humble man if you go talk to him, even though he's a very famous man. But his point was, we all, no matter how we are, need to be serving other people. And that's what life's about. And that's what Jesus was about. Jesus came here to serve, didn't he? When I'm serving, my mindset is so much better than when I'm being served. When I'm serving, I'm a happier person. I have peace. Things work in my life because I'm doing it God's way. And there's several verses in the Bible that talk about that. Now think about Galatians, the sixth chapter and the seventh verse. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. That is exactly what Mr. Dean did. Don't you think he felt a lot better than that kid did at that time? That kid was so proud that he, he wasn't bragging. He just wanted to tell Joe Dean, look, because of you, Mr. Dean, what you, you challenged me that day to be the best I can be. And I didn't give up. I did it. And we can all do that. Whatever area you want to do, it doesn't have to be occupation. It can be serving and just encouraging, going to see the sick, doing things for other people. Whatever it may be, do your best because we all have those talents. As I leave you tonight, just remember, I'll never forget, uh, every time Robert Jackson preaches, he always ends it with 1 Corinthians 15:59, where it says, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You know, at the end of the book of John, when Jesus is telling the apostles how they're going to die, you remember that time where Peter keeps asking Jesus, he keeps wondering, what about him, Lord? What's going to happen to him? Jesus, he keeps on prodding Jesus. Jesus finally goes, what is that to be? Follow thou me. I can't answer why people do things. We're all going to disappoint one another. If we hadn't, we will. We're people. But God doesn't. He's perfect. He says if we follow him and put our, our eyes on him and not on the tragedies or the negatives here in this life, because there are plenty, but there's much more to live for, and that's to be with God in heaven, and that's to serve while we're here. That gives us great purpose in this life.